0: In Bangladesh, uh, the road rules are very simple, and I found this out very early on. If you see someone bigger than you, get out of the way. That's how it works. So if you're walking along the road and you hear a rickshaw, which is just one of those big three-wheeled bikes come along, you get off the road or you're gonna get run over. If you're in a rickshaw and there's a car coming past, you move over and let the car past. If you're in a car and there's the minibus tooting behind you, you simply pull over and let the bus past. And if you see one of these fellas coming along the road, which is a huge truck with an oversized load that takes up two lanes, let me tell you, everyone just gets out of the road and the truck comes past. So it's very simple, really. If you see someone bigger than you, get out of the way. Now, in Jesus' day, I think that's the way the religious leaders were thinking. The more important that you are, the more people that you can boss around. And in Jesus' day, at the very top of the pecking order, well, what we call the Sanhedrin, the people in charge of the whole Jewish society. And they were the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And they are exactly the list of people that we meet in Mark 11, verse 27. So all these bigwigs come out to Jesus in verse 27, the heavies, and surprise, surprise, what is it that they want to talk to Jesus about? Authority. Who's in charge? Verse 27, have a look, Mark 11, 27. They arrived in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, okay read heavies, came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? See, these religious fellows think that they're the biggest ones on the block. They come to Jesus, and they want to know where his authority is. Comes from. They want to take Jesus on about the issue of authority. They think that they're the truck and they think Jesus should get out of the way. But that's not what's going to happen. Let's read on and see what, what does happen. What does happen in Mark 12 is we have a series of seven confrontations between these heavyweight leaders of Israel and Jesus. A bit of a kind of verbal sparring match, if you like. The first one is in Mark 11, verse 27. We've already read it, uh, but let's uh, have a look at it. The chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? It's quite a simple question, and Jesus answers their question with another question to them about John the Baptist. And the key to understanding Jesus' answer is this. John the Baptist, everyone knew was from God. Okay, They knew he was a prophet from God, but he said that Jesus was greater than him. In other, in other words, John the Baptist said that Jesus came from God too. And so Jesus answers verse 29. Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, well, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. See the question? Where does Jesus' authority come from? Well, where does John's authority come from? And of course, the answer is it comes from God. But they don't want to say that. And so look at the pathetic answer they come up with, verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, of course, it's not that they don't know where John's authority comes from. They know that John's authority is from God, but they don't want to admit it. So round one is over. Jesus won, Pharisees nil. It's clear that Jesus' authority comes from God. Round 2, verse uh, Mark 12, verse 1. This time, though, Jesus is on the front foot. He comes out first and he speaks to them in a parable, which is just another way of saying a story. He has a story about a farmer planting some grapes. But it's not really about just a farmer and some grapes because if you look right down to the end there at verse 12, it says that they were looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable Against them. See, this is not just a story about grapes and grapevines, this is about the religious leaders of Israel. The vineyard, the grapevines, is the nation of Israel. The man who owns the vineyard is God, and the people who are meant to be looking after it and tending it are these leaders. Have a listen. Verse 1. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. This is God with his nation of Israel. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. In other words, he's giving his, the people of Israel into the hands of the leaders to look after. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty handed. I think Jesus here is talking about the prophets that God sent to speak to his people. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is what they will do to Jesus in just a few days. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. See, the leaders of Israel are meant to be looking after God's people for God. He's left them in charge to look after his people, but they're not. And it's, it's at the point now where they don't even recognise God's authority over them. They're not listening to his messengers and now Jesus is their last chance. Jesus is that last messenger who comes to the vineyard and if they don't listen to him, the owner is going to come and judge them. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to them, which is a psalm all about the Messiah. You remember what we were seeing last week, that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And Jesus is saying that, Psalm 118, which is talking about the rejection of the Messiah, is talking about them. They're rejecting him, but he's the most important stone there is. See, he's answered their question about authority. And he's saying to the religious leaders, not only do I have authority from God, I have authority over you. And if you fail to recognize my authority, you'll be judged by God. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away. It's the end of round two. Jesus 2 Pharisees 0 A few years ago I don't know how many of you know David Hampstead he used to be part of Evening Church. He had his first boxing match down at the WRSL club. Don't ask me why he was boxing. His father couldn't Talk him out of it. It's the kind of thing you do when you're a young 18-year-old. Anyway, it was his first fight, and so he had been training like anything. And there was this young guy up from Marrickville in Sydney to fight him. A few minutes into the fight, they stopped it. The, the, um, what do you call the guy who's in charge of the boxing? He's not an umpire, is he? The referee steps in, and he calls the fight off. He declared it a no contest, a mismatch. Because Dave was so good. The other guy was way out of his league. It wasn't worth letting the fight go on. Someone would just get damaged. If these religious guys had any sense, they'd realise that they're fighting someone they have no chance of winning against. They should go home. But no... They come back to Jesus in verse 13. And this time it's a bit of a coalition. It's the Pharisees and the Herodians in verse 13. These two um, groups of people hate each other. And in the very thing that they argue against, political loyalties, they come to test Jesus. The Herodians would have been for paying taxes to the Romans and to Herod. The Pharisees would have been against it because they're very Jewish in their um, loyalties. But maybe these two enemies united can beat Jesus. Verse 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Why not start with a bit of flattery? buttered Jesus up, not a word of it they believe, but anyway. Then it comes to the question, verse 14. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? I'll tell you the trick to this question. If Jesus says pay taxes to Caesar, the Jews are not going to like his answer. They hate Caesar. This is their land, this is their temple. The Romans have come in and forced them to pay taxes. But if Jesus says... Don't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, he's going to be reported for speaking against Caesar. He's in charge after all. So this is a political question aimed to trap Jesus. Whichever answer he gives, he's in trouble. How will he get out of it? Verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They bought the coin. And he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Jesus asked them to bring him a denarius, a Roman coin. I ordered one off eBay. It just looks like this. I think I've got a picture of it. Jesus asks whose portrait is on it. On the front, just like we've got the Queen Elizabeth on our um, coin, there's a portrait of the Roman emperor of the time when it was made. It's actually, that word portrait is the same word in Genesis 1.26, where it says we are made in the image of God. In other words, whose image is on this coin? And whose inscription? Jesus is asking about two things, and it becomes plain if you've seen one of these coins. On the front is the image. This one's got Emperor Augustus. And on the other side is his inscription. See? Augustus in front of Greek letters. So whose image and whose inscription is on the coin? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. What a lovely answer. See, this is just a piece of metal. It was made by Caesar anyway. It belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. It's not going to hurt you. But give to God what is God's. And what is God's? You and I are. We're made in the image of God. God's image, God's portrait is on our lives, Genesis 1.26. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, your taxes. And give to God what is God's, your life. And we're back where we started, aren't we? Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, how dare you march around here thinking you have the authority, even your own life, Does not belong to you. You belong to God. Give to God what is God's. And it says, they were amazed at him. Jesus 3, Pharisees 0. Scene four, and this time there's a new opposition, fresh blood if you like, the Sadducees. They ask Jesus the most convoluted question that you could ever dream of about the resurrection. There's a man who marries a woman and the husband dies and she marries another woman and that husband dies and on and on it goes, seven husbands later. It's, it's just a crazy question. But we see why they're asking it in verse 18. Have a look right at the start there, verse 18. <clears throat> then, you, then the Sadducees... Who say that there is no resurrection came to him with a question. See, this question is not about marriage at all. It's about life after death. And there's two things we need to know about the Sadducees. One is, they don't believe in the resurrection. And secondly, They only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. They were the books that were written by Moses. For the Sadducees, they didn't like the rest. They didn't read the rest. The rest speaks all about the resurrection. So, they had the first five books of the Old Testament and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And what does Jesus do? He shows them from the first five books of the Old Testament that there is a resurrection. And he jams them for not knowing it. Verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Verse 26, now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses? See the very book that you believe in? In the account of the bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So he shows them from their own scriptures that there is a resurrection. Jesus four, religious leaders zero. I love the next scene because um, in the next scene, one of the very teachers of the law who's been watching this argument go on from the outside starts to come round to Jesus' way of thinking. He's actually won over by Jesus. He notices that Jesus has given them some good answers. Verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? This is a good question, isn't it? This is not a trick question, this is a genuine question. And so Jesus answers it with a genuine answer. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him and to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is the opposite of what we saw last week, wasn't it, where they were all caught up with their religion and not loving God. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Did you notice this scene doesn't doesn't have the same tension as all the others. It seems as if this guy is genuine. And Jesus answers by saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then we read, from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Isn't that last line interesting? From then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. What is it that stopped them? It wasn't Jesus' clever answers. It wasn't Jesus exposing their hypocrisy. It wasn't his message of judgment spoken straight at them in the story about the vineyard. That doesn't stop them asking questions. But when one of their own, when one of the teachers of the law actually starts listening to Jesus and actually thinks that Jesus might be right, well, from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. They don't want more people being converted over to Jesus. And so for the religious leaders now, it's too close to the bone, it's over. But not for Jesus. Jesus, you see, is just warming up. And so in the very next verse, verse 5, Jesus gives them a riddle that they can't solve about the Messiah being a descendant of David and so on. And in verse 37, it says, The large crowd listened to him with delight. And even though these religious leaders have no more questions for Jesus, Jesus has some more things to say to them. Verse 38, Jesus, in fact, shows us what this whole confrontation has been about. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces And have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Now, That's exactly what we're looking at last week, isn't it? These religious people think that they can do whatever they want. And then they just think they're okay because they have the temple. But they're like a fig tree with no figs. Their life is not genuine, it's barren of any love. And God hates it. And that's what we're thinking about last week how God hates external religion. But this week, I want to think about what it is that God loves. What brings delight to God's heart? What would it look like if Israel were a fig tree that was bearing figs? What would that look like? And the very next verse shows us exactly that, verse 41 to 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came in. And put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. What is it that brings delight to God's heart? Not the Pharisees and all their show. Not the religious leaders and all their religion. Not the teachers of the law and all their cleverness. Not the rich people throwing their money into the temple. They're not the ones who bring delight to God's heart. But this poor widow who brings two of the smallest coins that you could have. In Jesus' day, a denarius, the big one we looked at, earlier was about a day's wage these small ones are way way less than them the widow put in two lepta it says and a lepta it's not even an official coin it doesn't even have any inscription on it it just means a little coin of no value in Matthew where it says are not two sparrows sold for a penny showing you how worthless a sparrow is they're only worth a penny well a penny is four coins up from these little worthless ones you could almost think why bother And Jesus says, not only has she done something valuable, verse 43, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Literally, it says there, she put in her life. And that's what God wants. God wants our everything. It's not about what you do give versus what you don't give. It's not about how much you give. It's about God wants your everything. And it's not just about your money. It's about your whole life being lived for him. In fact, that's what verse 17 was about. Look back at verse 17. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? God wants you to give your life to him. Well, he owns it anyway. He wants you to live your life for him. If you understand who you are and if you understand who God is, that's the only response to live your life for him. Verse 29, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. That's what it all boils down to, love. That's what God wants from us, our hearts. He wants us to love him and he wants us to love each other, not just to do things out of guilt for him, but to love him, not just to go through the motions externally, but to love him with our hearts. I mean, in one sense, it sounds simple, but it's not that easy, is it? This is precisely what Israel failed to do. Despite warning after warning, God's people could not do this. They simply could not love God. That's why Jesus had to come. The parable of the vineyard talked about the son of the owner being killed. That's what happened. Within two days of Jesus speaking that parable, the religious leaders killed him. And his death was for our forgiveness. His resurrection was for our new life. And Jesus now ascended to the right hand of God. He pours out his spirit on his people so that we can love God. We can't do that in our own strength, but God, by his spirit, makes it possible for us to really love him. And isn't that exactly what you want? I mean, that's what I want. I fail at it. I'm not good at it, but I want my life to be lived for God. And if you have the spirit of God, isn't that exactly what you want to? To be someone who loves God with all your heart. To be someone that when you wake up in the morning, your first thought is, how can I please God today? Isn't that the person you want to be? That, to be that person that if you have a spare moment during the day, at work or at home, your first thoughts are turn to God and you just want to enjoy being with him and share whatever it is that you're doing with him. Don't you want to be that person whose life is lived in obedience to God's word? That's the spirit of God in you. And when you meet people who are on fire for God and who have an obvious passion for Jesus and their lives are lived for him, isn't that the kind of person that you want to be like? I mean, who wants to be that lukewarm, half-hearted person who disobeys God and gets their life in a mess and their life is burdened with guilt? Doesn't have to be that way. Don't hold on to your life It's not worth it. Give it over to God. Belongs to him anyway. Live it for him. Your whole life. Let's pray. Father God, you're our creator. And you made us in your image. Like you. To love you and to live for you. And yet, Father, we follow that lie that Satan sold us in the garden that somehow life can be better without you. Or that we'll miss out on things that if we follow you. Father, nothing could be further from the truth. Thank you that through Jesus, even though we have ignored you and rebelled against you and failed to love you, that we can be forgiven. Thanks that you love us that much. And Father, we pray that we would love you with all our mind and with all our heart. Father, by your spirit, we pray that you might help us to live our lives for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.